I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. What's going on today? Today's been a great day. Kind of had a meeting this morning, a couple of patients. Now I'm hanging out with you, my best buddy. So when I'm out and about, people will come up to me and, and sometimes they'll want to talk about sobriety. Sometimes they're going to want to talk about TV, but more and more it's they want to know about Matt. Dr. No. Matt, I, swear, I'm I don't not, believe that at I'm all. I'm not lying. They go, Dr. Matt Woolley is so cool. Is he really that cool? Because, I mean, I'm telling you this is because you're... Are you, do you need a co-signer for No, something? I don't need a co-signer. I don't need anything. Okay. And, and I do want to tell you thank you for doing this podcast, but you're so relatable. There's so many times when people go and talk to a doctor, even me, when I went and talked to the doctor for the first time in right. four years. Like, he's using words, and I'm like, hey, you got to pump the brakes, bro. Talk to me like I'm a fifth grader. You know, Big words are hard. Why use them? But I, I think that's why people love you, and uh, you're just relatable. Well, and thank so, you. so I, they want to know, like, is Doctor Matt like that all the time? Do, do, do you know? And it's like, he's probably the best father I know. Like the way you spend time with your kids, and is amazing. Like when I see pictures on Facebook of yeah. when your kids have birthdays. <laughs> Yeah. I'm like, did he hire a professional to come in and decorate a cake in the table? And you're like, no, that's me. Yeah. So do you have like a, a box yeah, full? skills. Do you have a box full of like birthday bags and streamers and balloons? I do, actually. <laughs> yeah. Do. I, have, I have a cupboard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The birthday cupboard. We got all that stuff. I love it. Yeah. That's, uh, I have great kids. They're easy to be fun with. But I was talking to you on the elevator up, and I said, how are things going? And you said, it was a good day, not too many crises. And I think I wanted to bring that up because you are like a EMT or an emergency room doctor where you see a lot of people on their worst day. Your every day is talking to people on sometimes their worst day. Sometimes, yeah, that's true. And so as a therapist, how do you deal with that? I know you do meditation. I do, yep. And are you still doing that regularly? Yes, every day. And so much uh, if I the, miss a day, I always notice it. So, and so yeah. much in the fact that you're getting ready to launch kind of this new thing. Uh, well, I mean, I'm just working on my own certification for what's called mindfulness-based stress reduction. Now, do you think most a, addicts could benefit from what you just said? Yes, and in fact, a lot of uh, uh, recovery centers are using mindfulness techniques in as part of their recovery because it's been shown. Uh, to be very effective with things like pain management, uh, recovery from drugs and alcohol, anxiety, depression, things like that. Now, I, where I went, we used some mindful techniques. What are some mindful techniques that you could say that people would be like, I want to maybe do a little research on that? Yeah. So one of the one of the things you could just – if a take-home message from the show today would be 
if you use your senses, any of your senses, to bring your attention into the moment, that's a mindfulness moment. So, for example, one thing I tell people that you can do every day, a few times a day, is make the first bite of a meal a mindfulness bite. Because you can pull all your senses or most of them into that. You look at what you're eating before you eat it and look at the texture, the colors, you know, what does it look like? Pull it up to your face before you bite it and smell it. Can I smell the different uh, smells of what I'm about to eat? Mm -hmm. The first bite when it goes in your mouth, let it kind of move around in your mouth. What's the texture, the flavor? Dance around the palate? There you go. Dance around the palate. Uh, and then as you swallow it, take a moment to just feel grateful for that nice uh, bite that you just took. And then go ahead and, you know, don't, that would take all day to eat your lunch. So just do it on your first bite. But by being mindful, pulling our attention into the moment, even just for a few moments throughout the day, it's been shown to be restful for your mind. It gets you out of that anxiety, what if thinking about the future and uh, can really help as part of a process. I got to bring that technique up to my son, uh, my girlfriend, the lovely Leslie, whose birthday is today. Happy is birthday, it really? Leslie. Wow. Yeah. Happy birthday, Leslie. Uh, she, she goes out of her way and she makes a good home cooked meal almost every night. Wow. And um, sometimes she'll be like, did you guys even taste it? Yeah. You know, it, it looks like it. you and your son just inhale it, you know, yeah. and, and I don't and I think that has a little to do with my upbringing and my brothers. Uh, you know what I mean? Got to get there, get there. Yeah. Fast. If you don't get yeah. there, then it's gone. Right. You know what I mean? So it was it was survival of the fittest. Sure. And so we never really did that. And it, and, and it kind of reminds me of, you know. Nobody ever sits you down and tells you how to eat. You just assume most people know how to eat. Mom might tell you to take your elbows off the table, but that's not really eating. Yeah, but, you know, and I've often said, like, my girlfriend, she eats for enjoyment. I mean, that's, she really, you know, she likes a a Would you say she's a foodie? Yeah. She she really appreciates flavors and textures and different dishes and things. And I've always said I eat out of necessity. Mm -hmm. And and, and that's 50% true. And the other 50% is I eat when I'm bored. And it, yeah, and, and, it, be and it's a coping tricky, mechanism. Huh? Yeah. So when my girlfriend moved in and she's been with uh, in the house for now about seven months, mm-hmm. she'll buy one of those big containers of M and M's. You know the ones you get at Costco. Yep. And when when she lived at her own house and I would have sleepovers, you know that M M&M and M thing would last for a month and a half because you weren't there every day. I wasn't there every day, right. but when she moved in, that sucker was gone in three days. <laughs> <laughs> She, she was like, she was like, I'm glad we're here talking about addiction. Yeah, she was like, you already ate all the Easter M and M's. I go, oh, that's why they were pastel. She was like, yeah, they were supposed to. Last. It's not even April yet. Yeah, they were supposed to last until <laughs> Easter. But I'm so now I'm trying to be more mindful because, truth be told, I put on 15 pounds when she moved in. Oh, because she's a good cook. She's a good yeah. cook. The fridge is always stocked, yeah. and there's food there. And so and my old mindset was always, if it's there, I'm going to have to eat it before either my kids get into it or <laughs> my brothers would have. Right, exactly. You know, and so it was kind it's of— It's easy to graze when the food's good. You just have a little bit here, a little bit there. Pretty soon you've eaten too much. When, when, when it was just single and fresh out of rehab, um, my kids survived on Taco Time burritos yep. and Top Ramen. You know, and but my kids are, are are awesome. I mean, they didn't complain too much. We'd go to uh, Papa Murphy's on Tuesday because they were ten dollars pizzas. There you go. But you know, I, and I feel bad, but I was doing the best I could with what I had. Oh, that's and, fine. And, yeah. and, and, I, and but once again, I mean, I the only culinary class I ever took was in ninth grade at Ogden High. Yeah, I learned to make brownies. I got kicked out. <laughs> okay, don't put X lax in the brownies. <laughs> 
And that's a true story. True story. Yeah. Dude, it was me, Tony Henderson, uh, and James Nadold. We got called in, and the teacher's like, I know what you did. And we're like, no. And she's like, what did you think was going to (laughs) happen? So we got suspended. Uh, yeah. I have to then, say that's pretty awesome. And then asked not to come back to the class. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah. So, um, but I, I guess and what I'm saying is that that mindful stuff really works. It, it has so many different benefits. It actually has been shown to be healthy for cardiovascular health, bring, you know, so that your heart rate and everything is staying at a better pace. Certainly helpful for anxiety and stress management. Uh, it helps you stay focused on goals. So if somebody is in the process right now of, trying to recover from drugs and alcohol, you have goals. And it's easy to get all up in your head and worry Mm -hmm. about what if this and what if that. So, you know, learning to do mindfulness practice. uh, There there are books you can buy for yourself. You can work with therapists. uh, I definitely recommend it. So I'm excited to have that as part of my clinical practice. I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist. Mm -hmm. And so CBT, even research outcomes have been shown that if you add mindfulness, it dramatically improves outcomes. So I, I love it. Okay. Randy Larson and Brett Bauer were the other two guys. I didn't oh, want yeah. them to get away with it. Right. Well, you got to call them out 40 years later. Or yeah, yeah, we're not, yeah. yeah, we just had our 30-year reunion. 30 years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're okay. Uh, we've got a wonderful show for you today. Uh, her name is Misty Lopez. How are you? Uh, and you're married to a former guest of our show, Manny. One of our favorites. He, yeah. Ma- and if you don't remember Manny, if you saw the videos on Facebook, and we want to thank everybody for their comments on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, we, you know, we have had a lot of great participation in social media lately. And, and, and I try to get to as many as I can, Dr. Matt does, and even well, nobody Josh. nobody wants to talk to me. They always want to talk to you. No, they want to talk to all of us. <laughs> and so... And so we try to answer those, but I do want to say thank you because you guys have made our social community a wonderful place to live. But it's not about the community. It's about Misty today. And uh, you've been with Manny how long? Uh, about four years. And you guys met running and gunning on the streets. Yes. Yep. We're going to find out what brought you to the streets. You're listening to Project Recovery. Misty Lopez is next. I'm Dave Cauley investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold season three, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the podcast, Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Misty Lopez. How are you? I'm doing good. Right off the bat, Dr. Matt noticed you got a little bling on your teeth. Yeah, I do. I love it. Now, now, now what is that just for fun? Or yeah, just you, for fun. Just to mix it up a little bit? Yeah. Does it hurt? No. Uh, it's just on there with uh, like braces, glue. So Let me ask you like a question. Diamonds. It looks like diamonds yeah. on her teeth. Let me ask you a question before we get into the podcast. Like, and, and I use this as a response to a lot of people when they go, is it tough? And I go... No tougher than going through recovery. Right. You know, and, you know, I even to my kids, I go, we can do hard things, you know. And for me, a lot of the reservation of getting into recovery or getting treatment was the fact that I didn't think I could do it. Right. I didn't know if I had it in me. It becomes such a crutch, such a tool in my belt that I, I didn't know what the world would look like if I didn't have that. Yeah. So did you find that? Or what What kept you from going into recovery? Um. A lot of fear-based, yeah, just thinking I couldn't do it. And also, I really didn't 
understand how big the recovery world was, to be honest. So I really didn't know my options. Did you feel alone in your addiction? Very. Even when you were living and running and gunning on the streets? Yeah, always very, very alone. But there is a community in addiction as well, right? But it's not a like a... It's not necessarily a truly supportive community. Because you're only only cool if you got cash or drugs. What can you do for me? Yeah. Yeah. So where does this story of Misty begin? Um, so I was born here in Salt Lake. Uh, my family, my, I was raised in an addict home. My mom was pretty heavy into drugs. My dad was in prison most of my life, also into drugs. Aunts, uncles, cousins, siblings, all of them. Um, so even at that young age, growing up in that environment, um, did it seem normal to you or did you feel yeah. like it, that we're yeah. different? Um, I mean, I just kind of, I thought it was weird because I was raised to just know like cops are bad, lie to cops, protect the family at all costs. Like, so, I mean, to me it was normal. Yeah. Think about that. I mean, I mean, I tell my kids now, uh, you know, if anything goes wrong, search for a cop, search for an authority figure, Mm -hmm. but you are taught to avoid. Yeah. And if you do see like cops on our street, you let the family know, you know, like that was just kind of embedded into me in a pretty kind young of age. Kind us versus them mentality. Yeah, absolutely. But as a kid, you, my guess would be, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that sort of made you feel like part of the family unit. Like yeah. it's us versus them. So we define us by who we're not. Yeah. Those guys are dangerous. So part of that connection. I'm, yeah. I'm like, part, I'm doing something important by letting my parents know if a cop's yeah, in the neighborhood. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think kids can grow up feeling like that. That's part of my connection yeah. with my family. It's my identity. Yeah. yeah. So were you an only child? Um, no. So I have two older sisters who were taken. Um, so I was pretty much an only child. Taken and I have by? A, by their dad. And then um, I have a younger sister that was given up for adoption. So, I mean, it was just me in the home pretty much. And do you remember the uh, first time you tried alcohol or drugs? Yeah. I, uh, the first time I drank, I was probably about 13, 14 years old. Um I didn't really stick with it too much. And then um, my dad passed away in 2004 while I was in um, a foster home in California. And that pretty much did it for me. And then I just kind of ran back to Utah, hitchhiked here, um, Mm. 15 years old. And, you know, my family, they were all super in their addiction, trying to keep me out of it. And um, that just didn't work for me because I felt super disconnected from them so so your family was trying to uh keep you from it and sounds like actually doing some some proactive stuff by putting you in a home and and trying to get you help um so no my i was living with my family when i ran away uh, my grandma took me from my mom when i was about nine years old and that's when i went into foster care in california um but then I hadn't talked to my real family for a really long time. And so then my dad passed away and I got to see them for the first time for his funeral. So like five or six years you hadn't yeah. seen your, your family yep. here in Utah? Yep. And then uh, when I went to his funeral, I just kind of was aching for that family connection. So I, I started acting out really heavily in California at my um, foster mom's. And eventually I just went to go look for a job for the summer and just never came back. So. At 15? 15. You hitchhiked from California back to Utah? Yep. What was that like? Was that... Terrifying. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I, it was, I'd be, it was I'm really scary. I'm 51. That would be terrifying yeah. for you me. You talking to thumbs out, walking along the street? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I was survival of the fittest, right? Like, I had no food, no money, no 
where to be. So um, finally, my one of my cousins bought me a bus ticket, but I didn't really know my way around. And um, by the grace of God, uh, somebody pulled over and was like, you need to get into my car right now. And I was like, absolutely not. I'm not doing that, right? But um, so I look up and I was being surrounded by a bunch of men. And so I was like one or five. So I t- jumped in the car and he stopped and got me food and took me to the bus station. So he so, saw you were in a dangerous yeah. situation and swooped in to try to help you. Yep. Okay. All right. Yep. And then I got back here and um, my uncle Cleet had gotten out of prison and I kind of just moved him into the house I was at without permission because he was kind of my um, childhood hero. I had some a lot of sexual abuse from my grandpa, his dad, when I was younger, and he used to save me from that. So um, I would do anything for him. And then... They, the whole house started kind of using because he's always been his addiction and they tried to lock me out of the basement and one day they were gone and I kind of just broke into the basement because I was sick of being locked out. So They locked you out for what purpose? Because they were using. So they wanted to sort of yeah. protect you from that yeah. world? And then you broke in and... That was pretty much all she wrote. <laughs> that's so you, you, that's yeah. when you started using hard, I don't want to say hard, but harder drugs? Yeah, that's when I started my uh, meth addiction, yep. And so you're at the age, what, 15? Mm-hmm. And do you remember the first time you tried meth? Did, did was yeah. it? Because, I, 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 mean, I mean, I can tell you why the first time I drank alcohol is because I wanted to see what all the hype was about. Yeah. I mean, this is what my parents. Curiosity, right? That's what my yeah. parents live yeah. for. Uh, this is amazing. You can't try it until you're 21. But any free time we get, this is what we do. So I'm in my head thinking. It's a mixed message, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. Like, well, yeah. That, this is so good. What's, I, I want some. Yeah. You know, and so you, you finally get a shot. and Yeah, and uh, pretty much took over my whole life. But, uh, I mean, it wasn't, for me, I didn't have any responsibility, you know. Um, I was You're not 15, in school. I'm, I'm not in school. I'm on the run. And, and I was like, now I have all this freedom. Cause were you my supposed to be home. in California? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Were they, they looking, were looking for you? They were looking for me, for sure. Yeah. Um, because I had a lot of structure in my foster home. Um, she was very strict and she cared a lot. But to me, um, I've never had that. So I was like, oh, she's awful, you know? So um, when I ran away and I had all this freedom all of a sudden to do whatever I want when I want, I was like, all right. You know, it was fun for me for a while. So that's why it took me a long time to kind of step away from it and... Then uh, I got pregnant, lost my daughter to the state. Uh, the day I got home from the hospital, our house got raided. And um, then I got pregnant shortly after again. And that's when I entered my first treatment center. So, How old were you at that time? 19. 19. Mm-hmm. So at 19, you're still on the run from California. Yeah. Well, I mean, eventually they caught me. I did go to DT. and um, What's DT? Um, it's like juvenile detention. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, my adopted mom was like, well, if that's where she wants to be, I'm not going to force her to be back. So she released custody to my grandma, um, which I knew I could get away with anything. With My grandma's not going to stop me from running the streets. All her kids run the streets, you know. So um, it just gave me more momentum to keep running and gunning for a while. So, Did you have any... At that age, I mean, I think wanting to try new things, life's exciting, you're mm-hmm. a teenager, but did you have any desire to like do the traditional teenager stuff, like go to school, make friends, you know? Um, no. So I did try. I had an uncle that really pursued me getting back into school, and, and I did. Um, he enrolled me into East High, and, and I tried, um, but I had already been in the streets 
for so long that when I did go back to school, I was like, I can't handle this. You know, like it was super overwhelming for me. And uh, it just seems super abnormal, people living these normal lives when I'm like, the world is ugly. That's how I, I looked at it, you know, and I'm like, you guys have no idea what the world's about. And so it was hard for me to connect. And so I just left. Well, that unfortunately you had um, early life experiences mm-hmm. between, you know, abuse, foster care yeah. um, and drug addiction in your family that um, adultifies yeah. a, a young person. It, it does sort of remove that childlike view of the world earlier mm-hmm. than it should be removed. And I, I, it's a very common phenomenon then yeah. that kids and teenagers who go through that, they don't, they don't see school and friends and yeah. sports and things like that the same way. They've, I've had kids describe to me, it's sort of like being on the outside looking in yeah. and I don't fit there. And so it's not the, you know, you couldn't have done well in that yeah. world, but you just don't feel part of it anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, sure. and so the problem with that then is then where do you go when you're 15? Because you really should be doing yeah. the kid stuff, but you don't feel like a kid. Yeah, I just went to the streets, started dealing drugs, uh, very young age, and and that was my life until I entered my first treatment center at 19. 19, two mm-hmm. kids. Mm-hmm. What was the circumstances that brought you to treatment? Was it was it self-imposed or um, court-imposed? No, court-imposed, yeah. So I, I had gotten my first felony. and um, Felony for what? Uh, possession. It was a felony back then in 2007, 2008. So uh, when they came and raided and took my daughter, uh, there was drugs there. So I got possession for that and like reckless endangerment. And um, Was it kind of a polysubstance abuse situation or were you primarily using meth? I was primarily using meth, yeah. Okay. And um, so then I had been on the run for quite a while, and then finally um, I got caught while I was about seven and a half, eight months pregnant with my second kid. And um, they were like, you need to do probation and all these things. And so then I was pretty serious about being sober, you know, because I didn't want to lose my son. And um, I hadn't told... DCFS was very involved in my life, and I hadn't told them that I was pregnant again because I didn't want them to take him. It was a very hard thing to cope with. Um, So they did find out, and they're like, you're going to sign over your rights to your daughter. We're going to take your son too. And so I did, and um, then I went to treatment for nine months through Valley Mental Health. Uh, Families in recovery staying together. It was a program called FIRST, and I did really well there. And then I stayed sober off meth. Um, for about 10 years. Um, but and, and so after you graduated in the nine months, mm-hmm. did you get both your kids back? No, just my son. They never took my son. I had to sign over my rights to my daughter. And when what did you like about the nine months at Valley Mental Health? I mean, what really clicked with you? I mean, because you said you went um, to school and it was like looking through a glass. Right. Um, it was just... Every everybody that was there, they were all they all had kids. It was all women and children. And um, the goal of that program, right, is to keep families yeah. together, right? And yeah, yeah. I, I like that idea. How did you mm-hmm. feel about it? Um, yeah, I, I like that. Like I had this opportunity to keep my son, and also it was very relatable. Here are these women who are very young as well and suffering with the same problem as me. And so for the first time, I just kind of felt like, oh, they understand. You know what I mean? So. Um, I mean, I did really, really well, but now that I think about that program, I didn't take much away from it, but they did help me work a lot 
through my um, pain of losing my daughter. So that was the, the greatest thing I got from that is they helped me cope with that. Um, but I don't really kind of made me arrogant to um, substances. I, like I really looked down at addicts after that. And so that's where I kind of failed. That's interesting. Why do you mm-hmm. think that was something? I'm that- not. I'm not really sure. I was just. I remember, like, just I hated addicts after that program, and I really looked down to them. I thought I was cured. I thought I was better than them. And uh, little did I know, I definitely was not. I was just kind of biding my time. It made me super complacent in my recovery. Do you, Do you think any of that might have had to do with the fact that when you were in your addiction, you mm-hmm. lost your daughter? Yeah. So then it was hard to have empathy for addicts because of yeah. what it cost you. Absolutely. So I think psychologically, yeah. sometimes we can't own something at right. a particular time in our life. Acceptance is really hard. And so yeah. you have to, so instead of owning it and saying, yeah, that's me, which I think is a really hard thing yeah. for addicts, uh, you fight against it. You say, I'm better mm-hmm. than that. I'm not that. You know, yeah. they're. They're the problem. I'm not a problem. Right. But I think that makes sense given the trauma of losing your daughter right. that you wouldn't want to associate yourself with like I'm an addict too. Yeah. And it, and it's hard not to associate because my whole family is still in their addiction during this time. My mother, um, I'm really close to my mom. We've used together. We've um, like for a long time she was more like a sister than a mother. So um, I looked at her kind of in a very negative light, but I know she lost her her daughter too. And so I think a lot of it was because I had become what I said I would never be, which was her, you know? And so it kind of made me hateful. (laughs) But you had uh, 10 years of clean time. What did you do during that? No, not so much clean time, right? Like I, I was sober from meth for 10 years, but as soon as I turned 21, after I graduated probation and all these things, uh, my son got diagnosed with a rare medical condition called MPS1 Hurler syndrome. So they're born, it's kind of like a protein deficiency. Um, they're born without alpha enzymes, which kind of like breaks down all the stuff in your body. And so um, that made me really angry, right? Because I felt like God was punishing me through my kid because I had to watch him suffer. Um, so I turned to alcohol and I was in a super toxic um, marriage back then with my kids' dad and very abusive mentally, physically, emotionally. And so I just became a raging alcoholic. <laughs> Which I, it, it's not uncommon yeah. because um, a lot of addicts in their mind, they think we often talk yeah. about on this podcast what your DOC is, and that's drug of choice. Mm-hmm. Well, if you listen to Misty's story, I mean, it sounds like um, meth was her DOC, mm-hmm. but she's no longer doing DOC, and that's what brought you to rehab, and that's on the mm-hmm. streets. And so. I'm okay with alcohol. Alcohol yeah. is not my problem. But it's right. just a shifting of DOC, right? And a yeah. lot of addicts will do that. And, you know, that they'll, they'll go, they'll step down and they'll, you know, and then your DOC becomes with the one that you can maintain yeah. the longest. So I have a, I want Misty to comment on this thought I have. Okay. So it sounds, so we often talk on the show, like the show's Project Recovery. We mm-hmm. try to focus on recovery, but recovery has a meaning nowadays. Yeah. Right? That you're living an active, healthy life. Yeah. Versus sobriety just means we're not using something, right? right? Yeah. And so it feels to me like you came out of that program uh, and you got sober from meth. Yeah. But maybe we didn't really embrace sobriety. No. Or excuse me, uh, recovery. It was right. a sobriety I was still attitude. still had all the behaviors, yeah. for sure. I yeah. was still very much in that 
lifestyle connected with my family. And so that's why I've always said I'm glad you brought up DOC. Like, my DOC has always been self-destruction, for sure. So well, That's an interesting way yeah. to look at it. Yeah. Like, whatever it's, can self-destruct me the fastest so the in that moment. the substance is secondary. Yeah. So, so tell, tell us about that. That's a lot of insight. Yeah. Why I do mean, you think that's the case? It took me a long time to get to that, and I didn't even realize I was an alcoholic till I went to House of Hope and and I was there for my heroin addiction, you know, and then I just kind of realized um, I'll do anything. Whatever destroys me the fastest, that's what I love. So <laughs> do you feel like that might have had to do with unresolved abuse in your oh, childhood? Yeah, for sure. A lot yeah. of times when people have, you know, children are um, have less power. I don't like to say powerless, mm-hmm. but they don't have much power over what happens to them. Right. And sometimes that lack of power isn't understood. So as we grow up, if we're abused as children, Mm -hmm. then we blame ourselves because we think we should have been able to control it. And that's where the kind of the self-loathing and Mm -hmm. self-destruction, self-deprecation can come in where you're like, I've talked to so many people and it's heartbreaking as adults in in their adulthood. They're still blaming themselves. I should have been able to. Yeah stop the abuse yeah it was hard and uh i think what made it hardest is when i did because my grandpa sexually abused me on my dad's side uh i ended up taking him to court um when i was in foster home they flew me back here to utah to take him and my family just didn't want to acknowledge it at all it's like you know what i mean so even still today and that's a lot of resentment i had to work through because they almost looked at me like how dare you bring this family You're secret creating a out. problem, yeah. right? Yeah. What was the outcome of uh, the court? <clears throat> um, probation. He got probation. I mean, he was still just sitting in... I mean, he's passed away now uh, last year, but um, he really only got probation. He did go to jail once when um, they found out I was at my dad's funeral and he was there and they weren't didn't let him know that I was going to be there. Um, but really just kind of like a slap on the wrist. It wasn't <laughs> nothing that yeah. should have happened. I mean, he was still very much in the family and, um, not treated any differently. So, yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, that is one of the main reasons that people who have been victimized don't mm-hmm. speak out is because the family system doesn't support them enough and kind of wants to ignore the facts. Yeah. And I don't, I can't blame people, uh, but that dynamic is so mm-hmm. destructive to the process of therapeutic yeah. recovery from abuse. Very toxic. It was really hard to work through that um, while being around him all the time, like yeah, Christmas full, parties, everything. Yeah. So um, the resentment just kind of build and built and built and built. So. You're listening to Project Recovery. We're listening to uh, Misty Lopez's story. Uh, we're going to find about more. Stick around. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Willie. Our guest today is Misty Lopez. And uh, she just talked about when she graduated uh, from Valley Behavioral Mental Health. Mm-hmm. Uh, did nine months there. Yep. Uh, then you found yourself in kind of a toxic relationship. Yeah. And you said you leaned heavily on alcohol. Yeah. Uh, for about a good nine, ten years. And, and, and so alcohol was now your DOC. It yeah. used to be meth. Yep. We do know that DOC is self-destruction for you now, yeah. but, you know, it took you a while to get there. Yeah. Um, and then I, so I ended up just one day leaving that abusive relationship finally, which I had been with him since I was 19. So I was super 
enmeshed into this person. I didn't know how to be by myself. How old were you now? Uh, 29. So 10 years mm-hmm. and two kids. Yep. And so um, I take off. I leave. I go to Missouri. That's where my mom's living at the time. Um, and Do you take your son with you? I take both my kids with me. Okay. Mm-hmm. I have two. I have a younger son by this time too. So um, I have two boys and uh, I took them with me and I didn't tell him I was leaving until I got there because I knew I would have just turned around and came right back. And um, I ended up getting really out of control with my alcohol out there because they have like mini bottles everywhere. Like it's very, alcohol is very big in Missouri. So. But you're also in a stressful environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're seeing your mom again. Yeah. Um, and you're... Was she using at the time? I didn't think so. Um but that's how I ended up relapsing is with my mom. So, um, but here's the thing: like I, I would relapse because it made me sober, and then I could start drinking more. So um, I was trying to feed my alcohol addiction more. But then eventually, I just forgot to keep picking up the bottle, and I was like, oh, now I've cured my alcoholism with meth. So that's fantastic, you know? Um, because I never thought I'd break free from that. So in my mind, I was doing myself a favor. I'm not sure that's a best practices for treatment, though. Like, no, let's get over alcohol. Not. <laughs> but in that addict yeah, rationale, addict right, it yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, especially when your demon for the past ten years has yeah. been alcohol. Absolutely. And you can't imagine life without alcohol, right? And then all of a sudden, I just forget about it, and that was great for me. I was like, absolutely, I'm cured. You know. I noticed before the break, though, you slipped in a little comment about your heroin addiction. Yeah. So yeah. where did that come? From? Um. So then. My so when my uncle had been killed um, in 2013, uh, and that was the one that you, yeah, yeah, Cleet, the one that like saved me a lot when I was younger from my grandpa. So and that uh, was news here in Utah, right? Yeah, yep. He was taken up to Snow Basin um, and executed, and then we found his body about two months later. And you said that was as part of a drug deal gone drug bad. Drug deal gone bad. Yeah. Yep. And so, I mean, I was pretty lost during that time, and. Um, then I came back to Utah because it just wasn't working out in Missouri, and I dropped my kids off at their dad's um, because I know the end result if I keep my kids with me. And, is that um, the state will take them? Yeah. And so in my mind, I was like, this is the best thing for them, and I took off to Salt Lake, to the streets, and um, nothing was just filling that void enough. I couldn't get high enough. I couldn't be numb enough and that's when my heroin addiction started so i'm, I'm curious of how you go from meth to heroin so you, you say nothing's going to get you high enough nothing's right. getting you numb enough and um, somebody suggests well have you tried heroin? well i was selling it at the time too. oh and so um i was just like why not you know I'm we've on had this pe- path <laughs> we've had people on the podcast who have said in their active addiction did the one thing that they never was going to do. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it was heroin. My my yeah. dad died from it. Um, my dad died from AIDS. He was a heavy heroin addict from Sharon Needles. And then I had an uncle commit suicide with heroin. And I have an aunt that has overdosed. So, I mean, heroin's a big no-no in my family. And I never thought. So, in, in, in your addiction, uh, a lot of addicts, most addicts, will have a line in the sand mm-hmm. that say they will never yeah. cross. Right. That is one that I will never mm-hmm. cross. But most people who end up on this podcast, at some point, yeah. it crossed that line. Yeah. I notice uh, each time you relapse, it's more extensive every time. It's more self-destructive. You just need more and more because you have more guilt, more shame every time. And so. And does the fact that you're, 
you tell yourself because I know I when I tried to stop drinking, I was like, I'm, gonna, I'm stopping tomorrow. So I might as well get really tore up tonight because mm-hmm. this is the last time I'm going to ever do it. Yeah. And so does that play into it a little bit when you relapse and you go, I'm going to get sober, but I'm going to take this as far as I can because this is probably the last time I'm going to um, do this. Because you, you actually tell yourself that and you do believe it. Yeah, well, at you, the you, moment. At yeah. the moment, sure. you're like, yeah. Um, I feel like it was like that with my alcoholism, but um, once I turned to street drugs, I'm I'm in it for the long run. I I don't tell myself I'm going to quit. I want to quit. Um, I'm going to go until I can't go anymore. And uh, is that that self destruction yeah. DOC? Yeah. So yeah. in my mind, I'm like I'm either going to go to prison or I'm going to die, whichever comes first, and I'm fine with that. So and you're fine with either outcome. Yeah. I was. <laughs> I mean, that's a sobering statement in yeah. itself. Is that you're like this is this is because well they'll tell you when you go into uh, recovery or you go talk to a, a therapist they go hey this is going to end three ways and the three ways they tell you is you get sober you end up in jail yeah. or you die those are the, that, that's the only three ways this is going to play out because you 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 can't maintain it it's this is something that's unmaintainable yeah. Did you realize at that time when you were in that mindset that you were suicidal? No. Did you think of it that way? No. I didn't think you would say no, or I didn't think you'd say yes, because most people don't realize that that is a suicidal mindset. Now, it may not be like we usually think of suicidal thinking as as what we call active suicidal ideations, like I'm going to go do this at this time. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's it is a suicidal mindset right. because you're like, well, I'm either gonna, it's self destructive is a nice description, but it's like I could die and I'd be okay with that. Yeah. So it's 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 sort of an actively passive suicidal yeah, way. Yeah, absolutely. Of, and and I was, I mean, more often than not, right? Like I I hoped I wouldn't wake up because right. it was too much. So and sometimes when I talk to people about that, they're surprised. They're like. I guess I never thought of it as I never suicidal. Had. Yeah. And I've been doing this for four years. And when yeah. you said that, I was like, whoa, that's deep. Yeah. yeah. I can pretty, I can identify it pretty well now. now. probably. Yeah. Right? But yeah. back then I was just like, it is what it is, you know? So, um, but thankfully I ended up getting arrested before anything got too crazy. I had some pretty hefty charges and. How long were you running uh, with heroin? About a year. And. Like, like and homeless al- at that time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But meth and alcohol were your previous DOCs. Mm-hmm. What was the difference of heroin compared to those? Oh, so heroin reminded me a lot of alcohol, which is why I loved it so much. Um, just kind of takes you to that drowsy state, that downer state. Um, the only difference is I would lose gaps of time. Uh, I'd wake up days later and I'm like, I have no idea what happened. And so, I mean, it was really scary. And then, um, is this uh, when you met Manny? Um, yeah. So I met Manny. I didn't get really heavy into my uh, heroin addiction until Manny was already in prison. So, um, but I did meet him on the streets while I was dealing and he had just gotten out of prison and he was doing good the day I met him, you know? And then I just kind of was like, we just kind of clicked and tore each other down pretty heavy (laughs) and so he goes to prison and then you Mm -hmm. really go hard with the heroin yeah yeah um because i had lost i mean he was my one thing i had and uh, so when he was gone i was felt pretty alone and so i was like why not and you end up catching you said quite a lot of charges yeah um yeah i had about i think about 38 to 42 felonies um that might be a show record 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was for fraud, uh, distribution, that kind of stuff. And so I'm curious how somebody maintains a heroin addiction, I, you know, while living on the streets. I mean, if you had to put a, a and you don't have to tell me if you don't want it, but like how much money were you spending a day? Oh, um, just depend on how much I made that day, right? Like if I had a thousand dollars, I'm spending a thousand dollars. So whatever I had in my pocket, I'm spending. I don't care what it is. It could be thousands, hundreds, twenties, uh, just whatever. And, and and a lot of that money came from fraud. Yeah. And and uh, we've said this many times on the podcast. Uh, addicts are very resourceful mm-hmm. when it comes to figuring out how to get that yeah. money. And if you could channel that and put that into a business, right. you'd be unstoppable. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And then I, I got caught. I sat in jail for quite a while. and um, So you detoxed in jail. Yeah, I did. What? Can, we, can I ask this? Yeah. Like, what's a fraud scheme you would have run on the streets? Because I'm sitting here trying to think, like, if you're homeless, it seems hard to find time to f- – commit fraud but absolutely how, not yeah i know i know it's not so i want to <laughs> could you could you tell us um, like yeah, what's, I mean, what's a type a of thing of you might have done i did right like was um i'd steal people's mail and i'd steal their identities and okay. that's how then i'd steal all their money yeah so that's <laughs> and, and it was awful just yeah. like going through mailboxes and things yeah yeah i mean that's all you have is time when you're on the streets right so and you racked up 32 to 42 felonies yeah. Uh, you end up detoxing in jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then how do you get to the House of Hope? Um, so my judge, Manny and I were co-defendants. So I got a private attorney because LDA was representing him. And my um, my attorney got me into drug court, which I did. Um, and then drug court had me assessed at the jail. And I told him, because um, I've tried Odyssey House, and I was like, listen, I... I can't get sober around men. Um, I have a lot of trauma from men. And so I need to go to a place that's all women. And they were going to release me to, once I was accepted into drug court, they were going to release me to like the streets or a homeless shelter. And I'm like, you guys are crazy. I will run. We'll just be right back here doing the same thing. And so um, they waited for a bed to open up and I got to House of Hope. And so now you're in House of Hope. Where is Manny? prison still mm-hmm. yeah i left him while i was in jail so i could really focus on i knew something had to be different or i was gonna die and so um i just kind of cut ties one day i just stopped calling and because his mom would piggyback phone calls for us and i just enough was enough and i just focused on myself which was hard but a necessity yeah. uh, i mean I, I i was just talking to someone yesterday about addiction and the reality is, is that I can't quit for my kids. I can't Mm-mm. quit for my ex-wife. I can't right. quit for my girlfriend. The only way that this really works is if I quit for myself. Yeah. And I, I say that heavy too. Like people do say their kids and, and that's a great motivator, but I didn't give a crap about my kids when I was in my addiction. So I mean, I can't we're, we're, use that as a motivation. I like, I have to become 100 with myself and I have to find some self-love or I'm never going to be able to be a good mom. So so now you're in House of Hope. Right. Um, what do they do there that starts to click with you? You said you um, did treatment 10 years prior. Right. Uh, and all you did was got sober. You didn't right. do any of the work. You felt. You said you felt like you didn't walk away with anything. Right. Um, so this one, House of Hope's a little different, right, because you're, you're in a residential program. Um, 
and you're either going to sit there or you're going to work on your trauma because they have levels, right? You're going to, you can't move up unless your therapist says you're ready. And, like belts and karate. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I mean, I got through orientation really fast and I was like, oh, that's great. Like, this is going to be cake. You know what I mean? I'm just going to fake it till I make it because that's what I've done my whole life. And um, I had a therapist that she worked a lot in the prison. And so she kind of, she saw right through my, my crap, you know, she's like, I mean, that sounds great, but I don't think you're being authentic. And so I guess you'll just sit here until you want to, or maybe you need to find another program. And so, I mean, I kind of, how'd that make you feel for her? Uh, Yeah. It kind of made me feel some type of way. It took me a minute to surrender. Made you mad. Yeah. I was very mad. I've been there. And, And I wanted to be like, well, I'll just go back to jail then. You know, that's easy. At least I can talk to my kids every day. Um, so I kind of went through this little dark phase in residential where I wouldn't surrender, and finally I did, and it, it helped a lot. She she helped me work through all of the trauma with my Uncle Cleet's murder, my past relationships. Um, Manny and I were super toxic in our addiction, obviously, so I worked through that stuff and um, my childhood trauma. What Was there something that all of a sudden just said, hey, I'm going to surrender? Or was it a gradual process? Or did one day you go, hey, look, we're going to do it. Let's just rip the Band-Aid off. Yeah. Uh, Well, I think just one day I was like, something's got to change, right? Um, If not, I'm just – I realized I was going to keep going back to the same thing. And talking to my kids and them being so excited, I mean, it was a good motivation, right? Because I hadn't seen them in years. And um, I didn't want to be like that anymore. I was very tired. And I think that's what it was, is I was just tired. <laughs> so how long do you spend in the House of Hope? Um, so I was in residential for six months. And then I got to outpatient and went to sober living. And that took me about three months. When did you reconnect with Manny? Um, so as soon as I exited residential, I reached out to him. Um, it's right before he ended up going to Odyssey. And that's when we reconnected. And uh, when you guys reconnect, uh, was it with the intentions of getting back together or, or, or I mean? Um, probably, yeah. I would say absolutely. Um, but I mean, I've just kind of always known he was my soulmate. You know what I mean? So, But you, it, you didn't let it come that easy. You No. Um, I had pretty firm boundaries. I was like, if that's great. You're going to Odyssey. Um, but I... I'm not going to be a part of that process, right? Like you really need to focus on yourself and the trauma I've caused you and the trauma you've had. And you can't do that if you're worrying about me. So I'm just going to go ahead and keep doing what I'm doing. Call me on the weekends and run a really clean program. That's my advice I gave him. I encourage you to run a clean program because that's what's going to save your life. And uh, Was he receptive to that? He was, yeah. I mean, I picked him up from the prison and I took him to Odyssey and... He did great. And, and now you guys great. are married? Yeah. yeah, now we're married. So I did drug court. Um, I graduated drug court in October, and I had to work really hard to get drug court, too, because him and I are co-defendants, remember? So um, I had to make it okay for him to live with me, and my drug court team was really awesome, and I think it's because I was super transparent from the beginning. And so I was like, why not have our relationship where you guys are involved in case something does happen, you know I'll have that extra support if it does fail instead of me just 
doing sneaky behaviors, and they were really receptive to that and let mm-hmm. him move in. So Good for them. And now you and your husband are living a wonderful life of recovery. Yeah, absolutely. And you're working together. Yeah, we work together. We both work at Papillon. Um, we're both in school to become therapists. Um, and so we're just doing doing the thing. We're right? like a dynamic duo. Yeah. <laughs> If you would have told yourself when you were running and gunning and doing heroin that in five, six years um, you'd be sober and working to get your license to become a therapist. Yeah, I wouldn't believe it. Like I've never and, – and Manny and I do realize like we're, we're truly blessed and it sometimes it's just super surreal and, and I'm really proud of us, you know. It, we, you should be. Yeah. So what does recovery look like for you guys today? Um, today, so we're super involved in the recovery community. We stay really involved with like USARA events, um, Rally for Recovery. We just, everything we can do to stay connected because that's where I failed last time is I lacked connection. And so we try to do that. And, you know, now I have my teenagers and he has his daughter and my teenagers are going through it. And so if I can break that cycle before they go into it that's that's my goal and so i'll take um, my son's been to ftr with us and my oldest son says he wants to be a therapist like us and so i mean it's it's really so cool you're modeling compared yeah. to the modeling you got right. growing up you and manny are modeling just some really yeah. pro social positive and you know healthy yeah uh things for your kids yeah and they're used to seeing um abuse so then when they come to our house it's it's a very different element. It's very happy, healthy home, and um, they've, it's changed a lot of things. So That's awesome. Yeah. Now, your story um, began with some pretty serious trauma. Right. For somebody who's out there listening uh, who might have gone through trauma themselves mm-hmm. and is trying to figure out a way to navigate that or right. to deal with it or run from it, what advice would you give them? I mean, I just really encourage, right, like, seek help i couldn't have done it without therapy and support like find a positive support system and don't be afraid to talk about it because that's what a lot of people fear is talking about the sexual trauma because of the way the family or the people will look at you any different and um like it just doesn't matter what anybody else thinks well i learned in recovery early is that our secrets keep us sick yeah that's and a big so, mantra of House of Hope, actually. Secrets keep you sick. And so, if, you, yeah. know, you know, then how can you be truly authentic or healed, if you will, if you're still holding on to this one little secret that right. you don't want the world to know? I mean, it, all of a sudden that little secret becomes just this, Yeah, very destructive. Oh. And that's a lot of it, right? Like I thought in my adulthood when I relapsed this last time, um, I thought I had nothing to do with that. I'm like, I'm so past that, you know? Um, but it turns out I've never had self-value because of that situation. And so once I gained some confidence from residential, that's when I realized, like, it all leads down to, like, how you feel about yourself. Mm-hmm. Dr. Matt, I, I know I say it all the time, but I, I just love doing this podcast. I love hearing these stories. I do, too. And I love 100%. looking at this beautiful, gorgeous lady who is just rocking recovery. Right. And, and, and you do have confidence. Yeah. And uh, you do have value. And you are a positive role model. And you're doing uh, positive parenting. And yeah. I, I mean, it's tr- tremendously impressive. You're yeah. doing awesome. You. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on Misty? 
Well, I am so grateful that she's willing to talk about her abuse and trauma. Yeah. Uh, I know we're here to talk about recovery, but as you've made the connection in your life that uh, abuse devalues a child and mm-hmm. uh, through a child's mind, we s- start to think certain ways about ourselves and into adulthood. If we don't value ourselves, if we don't feel like we have innate worth and value, then it makes sense that a DOC becomes uh, yeah. self-destruction. And so I guarantee you, there are people listening to the show because we joke around like our, our made audience is not uh, not people who are actively in addiction. No. There, there are some. It's mostly people that are in recovery right. or who have loved ones that are in addiction. Right. And I'm going to challenge those listeners to think about what Misty said today that do they have a DOC of self-destruction mm-hmm. and what does it look like? It may not be heroin, maybe food. Maybe scrolling on your phone, maybe Netflix. And does it stem back to unresolved issues that you could reach out today, get a therapist and start working on to get rid of your DOC of self-destruction? Yeah. That's my takeaway. Uh, I also like the idea of, of Misty and Manny together. Like They seem like like recovery <laughs> superheroes. Mr. and Mrs. Mr. And Mrs. Mrs. Recovery. Yeah, yeah. they're so you know cool. I mean? They're both so cool. Yes. Yeah, thank yeah. you. And, and I think you're a power couple. And I yeah. think, you know, that's the thing is that, you know, in this, there's a joke that the 13th step is hooking up somebody in your 12 step. Program. Right. <laughs> and they, I mean, and they tell you not to get into a relationship right. uh, within the first year of right. your recovery. And, and, and that's all good advice, but also this is the real world. There are exceptions. Right. And there's exceptions yeah. and there's people out there. And I love the fact that you two are holding each other accountable, yeah. but you made the time for you both to s- separately work on your addiction yeah. and your and, and your DOCs and your therapy and your trauma. Yeah. And then once you guys figured out that it would be a good idea to get back together, then you allowed that. Yeah. And how lucky are their kids to have oh, yeah. these parents? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Big time. Superstars. Yeah. Misty, thank you for thank stopping you. by. Yeah, thanks for having me. And in case you forgot, you've been listening to Project Recovery. And Dr. Matt, Project Recovery is what? You know what? It's right here as a KSL podcast. program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent. It was senseless, and I will never understand it. I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities 
of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.